It's Thursday, June 28th, and this is The Daily Dive. Huge news for the country and the Trump administration yesterday, as Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he will retire effective July 31st. Often seen as a swing vote, losing Kennedy offers President Trump the chance to cement the conservative tilt at the Supreme Court. Lydia Wheeler, reporter for The Hill, joins us to talk about the impact of this retirement and the intense confirmation battle the next nominee will face. In other huge political news, a newcomer has defeated the number four Democrat in the House. 10-term incumbent Joe Crawley was defeated by 28-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York's 14th District primary. My producer Miranda will join the conversation to talk about how Ocasio-Cortez won despite being outspent 10 to 1 and what it means for the Democratic Party. Finally, on the immigration front, another bill has failed to get enough votes in the House to address the immigration problems in the country. As Republicans now turn their attention to a more narrow bill addressing migrant family separations, a judge has ruled that the government can't separate families at the border and must reunite those already separated. Bill Scher, contributing editor to Politico magazine, joins us for the latest. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And I'm very honored that he chose to do it during my term in office because he felt confident in me to make the right choice and carry on his great legacy. That's why he did it. Joining us now is Lydia Wheeler, reporter for The Hill covering the Supreme Court. So there was huge news for the Supreme Court, for President Donald Trump's administration, for uh, the American people, really. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announced that he's going to retire effective July 31st. Why is this so significant? That's right. There was big news today from the court. Justice Anthony Kennedy is going to retire. And this is such big news because Anthony Kennedy is the pivotal swing voter on the court. He sometimes sides with liberals to advance gay rights and affirm uh, the right to an abortion. Uh, But he has also sided with the more conservative wing of the court to do things like um, strike down limits on campaign financing and limit the death penalty and those sorts of things. So what's going to happen here is this is going to kick off a vicious battle in Congress, uh, in the Senate, over his replacement. President Trump has a list of 25 potential candidates. Is there any front runners that we know of right now? The president already has a list of potential nominees. Um, this is a list that he crafted when he was selecting Neil Gorsuch, um, which is his first nominee to the bench. And right now, uh, according to media reports, it looks like Brett Kavanaugh, who's a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and Amy Coney Barrett, who's a judge on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, are front runners for the job right now. This is going to set off a pretty vicious battle over the confirmation of the next Supreme Court justice. It's interesting Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said right away, we're going to get somebody in before this fall. Senator Dick Durbin was saying, well, we should wait until after the midterms, taking a little page out of the playbook of Mitch McConnell saying, let's wait till the new Congress is set and then let's go for this. They're definitely already sparring um, back and forth here. Democrats are still bitter over the fact that Republicans refused to hold a confirmation hearing or a vote on President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. And that seat was held open until after the election. So it gave President Trump the chance to confirm Neil Gorsuch. And they haven't gotten over that yet. And so they're saying, hey, wait, if you demanded that we hold a seat on the court open until after the election, you know, 
during the last election, well, then we should do the same here. But Republicans are saying we want to make sure that we get uh, Kennedy's successor confirmed to the court before the midterms. How much leeway does that really afford them, though? The president is going to continuously nominate a more conservative judge to fill that seat. So at some point, obviously, Democrats can wait for something they feel is a little more palatable, but there's still going to be a more conservative judge anyways. That's what I would think, at least. Right. So, you know, Democrats don't really have a lot of leverage here. So there's not a lot that they can do. I mean, they can kind of kick and and scream about it and argue that this should be held over. But there's really not not a lot that they can do, because in order to confirm Neil Gorsuch, Republicans changed the rule to say that he they only now need a simple majority vote to get Supreme Court nominees confirmed. Speak a little more to the impact of Justice Kennedy. He was at the front of a lot of these five, four decisions where Like you said, he was that pivotal swing vote. A lot of people are saying this could impact the future of same-sex rights and uh, things on abortion. Obviously, those cases would need to arise for a new ruling to be made. He has been a moderate on the court. He sometimes sides with liberals. He sometimes sides with conservatives. He's a little bit unpredictable. But he's most famous or noted for his ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges, which was a case that legalized the right for same-sex couples to marry nationwide. And that followed a string of rulings in which he advanced gay rights. So he's been a reliable vote for the liberals on that issue. But then he's also sided with conservatives on, on other issues, including one to strike down limits on corporate campaign contributions. And that was a big ruling and a big win for the conservatives. So he's, well, he's unpredictable here. And a lot of court watchers are saying that they don't think that we're going to get another justice like him in the future. One of the interesting aspects looking into some of this is that since he was kind of that swing vote and if he sided with the liberal justices, he would often assign himself to write the uh, the reason for the rulings. So he'd get to frame the reasonings of why they ruled that way in his own words, which is kind of interesting. Without him there, this is going to give a lot more power to uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, and uh, he'd be in the majority a lot more often now that he's going to be gone. Right. People are actually thinking that the chief justice might actually uh, assume Kennedy's role as a swing voter on the court because he did side with liberals in, I think it was 2015, to um, uphold the Obamacare subsidies. And so he really saved President Obama's health care plan there. Is there anything on the docket that we know of now where a, a majority of conservatives will really, really make an impact? You know, there's not a lot on the docket quite yet for next term. Um, The justices have been very slow to take cases, so I'm not seeing anything that stands out at the moment. But there are cases coming before them all the time where he could play a pivotal role here and where the lack of having Justice Kennedy could be really felt. Timing is everything, and it's another huge opportunity for President Trump to really make an impact with his presidency. I mean, he stepped in at this time, and a lot of people are happy and unhappy with him. But he is really making a lot of important decisions that are really shaping the country. So it's just going to be very interesting to see who's going to be next. That's right. Lydia Wheeler, thank you very much for joining us. A Supreme Court reporter for The Hill. Thanks so much for having me. I just kind of walked into a TV set and I looked at the screen and I saw... Not only the numbers, but what those numbers were. And it was a complete shock. We have a lot of political stories today. My producer, Miranda, is joining us. There was a huge upset victory by a woman named Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She took down a 10-term Democratic staple, 
Representative Joe Crawley in New York's 14th district. It was huge news. He was she was outspent 10 to 1, I think, by the incumbent Joe Crowley. Let's start off real quick. Who is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Well, first of all, she's a very young woman. She's 28 years old. And if she wins, she will be the youngest woman ever elected to the Congress. I know. That's amazing. So she's 28 years old. She's born in the Bronx. She has parents who won. Her mother's from Puerto Rico. Her dad's from the Bronx. She's a native New Yorker. She calls herself a democratic socialist. She follows the Bernie Sanders school of politics. She worked for his 2016 election campaign. She has very little political experience. I wouldn't say none because she worked for Bernie Sanders. She also worked for Ted Kennedy's office before he passed away. But her father died in the year 2008. And to make ends meet, she took jobs as a teacher, as a bartender, that kind of thing. And she kind of put all of her political aspirations off to the side. Let's talk about a little how she did this. What was her platform? Her platform is very hard left. She's running on a platform promising paid family leave, Medicare for all, universal government jobs guarantee, justice reform to, quote, demilitarize the police. And she wants to abolish ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office. It's very Bernie-esque on a lot of those things. She, Like you said, she did work in his office. And now let's talk a little bit about Joe Crawley, the 10-term Democrat in that seat. He is, I'm sorry, he was the number four Republican in the House behind Nancy Pelosi and a couple of others. He was lining up to challenge her for this you know, speakership or the minority leader position, depending on what happens in November. So he was getting ready for this. And a lot of people say he just simply took his eye off the ball on, on this race. Yeah, and he's not only the highest ranking House member to lose a primary since Republicans, but he's also the first Democrat to be turned aside in this election cycle. So Crowley had been unchallenged for the last 10 terms. So having him not turn out for his base is not a surprise. There was a big misstep he took where there was a debate scheduled between him and Ocasio-Cortez. And he didn't even show up. He said it was scheduling conflicts, but he sent in a surrogate. Another uh, Latina female. Right. Let's talk about the money, though. Like I said, she was outspent 10 to 1. Through June 6, Crowley spent $3.4 million, including a million dollars since the beginning of May, with 840000 of that going for advertising, direct mail, polling, whereas Ocasio-Cortez refused to accept any contributions from corporate political action committees. She was raising all of her money through small donations. She raised $310,000 and she spent $207,000. Wow. It, that is huge discrepancy in the numbers right there. Millions of dollars to just a few hundred grand that she actually spent. And she had a really big push with a viral campaign video that went out very flashy talking about the establishment Democrats, you know, who is New York growing for, who is New York changing for. And it's got a big picture of Joe Crowley there. And, you know, she's really painted herself as a working class person, family that lives there. She's definitely in the community. One of my favorite shots from that video is she's waiting for the train. She's wearing high heels and you see her take her heels off and she puts on flats and then she's walking through the town and everything like that. So that went viral and it got her a lot of praise, a lot more looks and people started paying attention to her message. She got a lot of first time voters to turn out. Also, she had a very novice political team. This is the first time she ever ran. A lot of people in her campaign were first timers as well. And they were just very passionate, you know, newcomers, but very passionate. 
knocking on doors, as she said in a lot of interviews after we were reaching all those corners that people aren't talking to. Very much the same thing as President Donald Trump said, the forgotten man almost. She said it was a lot of people who work two jobs don't take time to vote. People who speak English as their second language, young people voting for the very first time. By all accounts, they were very refreshed to see someone who reflected their ideals and their life struggles. So what does this look like now for the Democrats? It seems like people are just sick of it. They're very sick of the establishment. You remember Hillary Clinton didn't win because she wasn't progressive enough. The Democrats wanted to turn 2016 into a purity contest. And notably, celebrities, people said Hillary Clinton's not for us. She takes money from corporations. So this win by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is is the big pendulum swing the other way for the Democratic Party. They're getting younger and they're punishing people who don't pay attention to their base. And the other big thing is uh, women. There's a very clear trend, Oscar, and that is in Democratic primaries for the year of 2018, when women run, they're winning. So they're saying, look ahead to 2020. Elizabeth Warren, Kristen Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, all of these people are looking for 2020 Democratic presidential race. And it's very likely we'll see one of these ladies put up against Donald Trump. And as we said before, you know, the youth is a big factor. She's 28 years old. The top three Republicans in the House right now are all over 70. Nancy Pelosi is 78, Steiny Hoyer is 79, Jim Clyburn 77. The party is definitely trying to grow. Since President Barack Obama had left, there was no star in the Democratic Party. We're looking at the next generation. The GOP has their star right now in the president, and Democrats have nobody right now. So We are seeing stuff like we have never seen before, Oscar. Thank you for joining us, Miranda. Thank you. On this vote, the ayes are 121, the nays are 301. The bill is not passed. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. Joining us now is Bill Scher, contributing editor to Politico magazine. Talking about immigration, let's start with the failed bill. Despite the ongoing problem at the border, family separations, President Trump wanting to build his wall, a lot of this stuff was included in this bill. It still didn't get enough support to pass. What was the major hurdle in this uh, bill that didn't go through? Republican Party has been divided on immigration for years, and even with the election of Trump on a very anti-immigrant platform, that didn't wipe away all those divisions. So the, the main dividing line remains whether some class of undocumented immigrants, in this case so-called dreamers, should they get a pathway to citizenship or not. And the party remains unreconciled on that point. So the two versions of immigration, neither one can get through because neither version gets any support from Democrats because it comes with other baggage that they don't want to sign on to. And they don't feel a need to compromise on the subject because judges have ruled that DACA should remain alive for the time being. So there's no pressure on them to cut a deal with Republicans. A lot of people are throwing some of the blame to the president, saying, you know, he's been very wishy-washy on the issue. Uh, he kind of supported the bill, then saying he would sign whatever bill passed, then he changed it, saying you're wasting your time. He sent an all-caps tweet saying Republicans should pass the strong but fair immigration bill. They're getting it from all sides, and they're not feeling like they have cover that they can vote for this bill because the president isn't pushing for it strongly enough. president is going to... Be a deal maker, as President Trump often claims that is his main strength. You have to get 
dirty. You have to cut deals. You have to make compromises. You have to be able to take something to the public that doesn't have every last thing that you want. And when it comes to immigration, as well as many other issues, Trump doesn't seem very interested in making those kinds of trade-offs. He seems much more interested in having the issue as a blood force rhetorical instrument to whip up his base. And if you actually do a deal that involves real compromises, you lose that tool. Yeah, and he needs to step up for that so that there would be enough political will on the part of Congress to want to act on that. What's going to be next for them then? Uh, They're going to try to do something more narrow just to handle the problem of separating families at the border. A judge is compelling him to do that. Trump signed the executive order saying he would, though it hasn't had a lot of follow-through yet, and now they're getting more judicial pressure to to, to hop to. Uh, I mean, even Trump recognizes that separating children from their parents is a non-starter with nearly every American, even people within his base communicated that that was crossing a line for them. At the same time, he very much wants to have immigration as a base motivator. All the energy in these special elections and primaries has been on the Democratic side. Democrats have won so many special elections or, or, or overperformed even when they when they lose in very, very deep conservative areas. They thought maybe the tax cut bill would be a motivator for the Republican base. That hasn't proven true as, as evidence with the Connor Lamb election in Western, Western Pennsylvania earlier this year. Uh, he opposed that tax cut. didn't hurt him at all on the Democratic side. So they're looking at immigration as the way to go to get people motivated and if you start backing off of that, that complicates that narrative. So I think they're having a hard time reconciling, scaling back where they were on family uh, separations and then actually following through in a way that makes people satisfied. You mentioned the uh, judicial approach. A California federal judge ruled that the government can't separate families and must reunite those who have been separated within 30 days. And if their kids are under five, it's got to be within 14 days. The president's executive order kind of already does that. She was just putting everybody's foot to the fire on this. And I assume they will get there. I mean, some of this is a logistical challenge uh, to to actually match up the children to where the parents are. And I imagine a lot of this policy is being done improvisational way, which doesn't make uh, putting the toothpaste back in the tube all that simple to do. As horrified as many on the left has been with how Trump has, has behaved, you haven't seen a lot of the Trump administration ignoring judicial order. When the, when the judges said, you have to put the DACA program back online, the DACA program was put back online. So I do think they will eventually have to follow through here, but I'm not sure they know exactly how to do it quickly. At the same time, they also want to send the message that they're being tough on immigration, tough on the border. Doing those things at the same time, I think, is a challenge for them. Right. It goes back to what you say. Uh, The president wants to speak a lot about uh, his ideas about it. Following through on the policy level gets a little tricky. You know, he passes the executive order and it just causes a lot more confusion than anything else, really. So it's tough to navigate the whole process. Right, and that's one of the problems with making these decisions based on the daily news cycle. You, you get the sense that they implemented the family separation policy without any real thought as to how the reaction would be and how they would handle that reaction because Trump immediately or almost immediately flip-flopped after seeing the blowback that he got and doesn't know quite exactly how to undo what he did. And at the same time, really wants to, maintain, to have his foot on the gas to say to his base, I, I am going to stop this invasion, as he would call it. Bill Scher, contributing editor to Politico magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.